Are you done this pussy ass mentioned in our previous episode, uh, the wonderful interview with Tomato. Thank you, buddy. Uh, you did a great job, Will. Thank you. Really, I was, I was nervous, just, and then afterwards I felt really good about it. God, you, felt, you should feel good. Thanks. You should feel that good all... I hope you feel that good all the time. I want to. Uh, just start interviewing people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, Will Nunziata, <laughs> when you're on the subway. You got five minutes? Oh, <laughs> you got five minutes. Um, so as Will mentioned in the previous episode, uh, Evan likes Ween... He's got two children that suck brown milk from his fat teats, <laughs> and so he's not going to be around much anymore. Um, and so what we've decided to do um, in classic podcasting fashion is pivot uh, to interviews. Uh, we started out with, as we just said, with Tomato from Sound of Urchin, um, and in this episode... We reeled in a big fish. Yeah, big, big fish. Yeah. Real big fish. Real, I love that band. Real <laughs> big fish. Uh, <laughs> we we interviewed real big. big the fish. members, the living members of real, which is all of them. <laughs> those guys don't party. Um, we got Kirk Miller. Yes, and for those of you uh, who don't live under a giant fucking rock, Kirk Miller is the longtime sound man of uh, the whole reason we're here. The greatest band ever. Um, so we had a really nice conversation. Paul, I got to say, you interviewed Kirk, and you did a fantastic oh, job. Oh, man. I feel great right now. Right? And I want to feel this way all the time. Yeah, yeah. man. Doesn't it feel I good? I got as well. I always feel this way. Oh, God bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Living a charmed life, Paul. Yeah. Will and I talk about how my goal in life is just to live how Will wants to live. Or wait, what do you want me to do? Yeah, no, you need to do all the things that I can't. Right. I have to live things. life pretty much vicariously through you. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. And I like to keep I keep Will abreast of everything that's happening. Where I, anyways, we had a fucking uh, thank you, Will. It was uh, he was lovely to talk to. Um, he's been with the band since '89. Uh, yeah, it's say, insane. Um, at the at the uh, Court Tavern in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, so we go all the way back to his origin story with the band. Um, and and it uh, ends with the story at uh, Brooklyn Steel from a couple years ago. Yeah, he's still doing it, and it was really great. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to do any spoilers, but just to talk to someone who's been a part of it for so long, who still just fucking loves the band. Um, it was a really great conversation, and we hope that you guys enjoy it. Uh, first, we got to announce uh, some Ween news uh, as uh, the tour continues. So they announced the Boston and Philly shows in December, and today they announced for us... Two hometown shows, February 14th and February 15th at Terminal 5 in New York City. Uh, the Godwin Evan team, all of us, if not 
maybe, maybe Evan. Maybe well, Evan will be, be there. Fucking throw him in the back of the yeah. van. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Valentine's Day. That's a big weekend for him to do shows. Yeah. He does that your love our musical show. Yeah, uh, but Evan will be there one night. I can't. I think he won't be there too. I think you gonna, I think we're going to get him for the, the Saturday night. I think he said. Maybe. No, I think the Friday night. Well, we'll figure Friday it out night. as we get closer. Yeah, Mikey, uh, edit this out. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Will will be there, and we hope that uh, we get to see you guys there. A uh, couple quick thank yous. I want to thank uh, Casey Lee for uh, sending uh, me some cool stuff. She sent me some uh, marijuana seeds. Thank you. And uh, Are she you also growing reefer. Well, I already am. Whoa, uh, very cool. But just to look at it, like I'm not going to be pollinating. <laughs> it's probably it. a good time to tell you that I'm a cop. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I'm, a cop. A tra- <laughs> I'm a cop, Larry. It's a trap. But uh, and she also sent me. Hospital, Larry. <laughs> Step ten, don't get good advice yet. The uh, she also sent me the original Taco Loco menu from New Hope. Get the fuck out! Yeah, of here. I got that in my house right now. Uh, and also, I want to give a big thank you to Amber Whalen uh, for helping make this interview today possible. I also want to thank Amber uh, because uh, for those of you in the community who don't know Amber, uh, she was the American Sign Language interpreter uh, at, I think she does a lot of shows in the Denver area, but she was fucking famous as far as I'm concerned. She's kind of stole the show at Red Rocks um, and signed her heart out um, and felt the music music pulsating through her and delivered I, to this to this date for me, and I'm a bit of a connoisseur of... Uh, Sign of, language? Well, I, I, there's the, there was the woman who did, used to do... Uh, uh, the mayors. Uh-huh. Uh, there's like you know, I get into it. I watch yeah. you know. Uh, I just saw a guy, a great guy, who did like a Pride festival. Um, I was into that. that guy you ever was, see the guy in Florida who they hired and he just didn't know any sign language whatsoever? <laughs> he was faking it the whole time. Uh, that's fucked up. Man. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, Amber no, does not fake it. She fucking knows it. And you haven't lived until you've seen her um, ASL Homo Rainbow. <laughs> so, um, do you? Hopefully, she'll be doing. Maybe she'll be doing the mission shows. Um, and, uh, which maybe I'll be doing. I'm still trying to figure that out. You should go. Cause I can't Paul. Yeah, I know. We'll <laughs> go, go and fucking go in my stead. Yeah. Um, I'll just go and tell people I'm Will Nunziata. That's fine. That's even better. <laughs> um, and we are, uh, so we really hope you enjoy, um, this interview as much as we enjoy being a member of the Osiris podcast. That was smooth. Network. Uh, Osiris, um, uh, Godwin Evan is part of, um, the, Osiris Network. Osiris is a global community uh, connecting um, passionate fans with pedestrian per- <laughs> oxypercus dans uh, with arthritis. Mikey, I can't read your writing. Connecting uh, pod- podcasts and experiences about artists and topiaco puddings. With the pudding, oh, I shouldn't do. I was going to do my uh, more Bill Cosby. I was do my Cosby uh, <laughs> Paul, just put the paper down and just talk about Osiris we from your heart. Love Osiris, we're a part of it. So many wonderful podcasts, including producer Mikey's two podcasts on there. There's great. There's uh, Under the Scales, Tom Marshall's podcast. If you love music, oh, there's a great new podcast. Can I? I think I can. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about what I can. It's out there. The guy, the great music journalist uh, Jesse Jarno, is that his name? Is doing one on Big Cypress about the fish. Will you'll love this? Yes. <laughs> uh, about the fish, Big Cypress New Year shows. Maybe the greatest set of music of all time. Uh, Mike, you were there. 
Um, and so anyways, we fucking love Osiris. We're part of it. OsirisPod.com. Um, check it out. Classic Osiris plug. <laughs> uh, our guest today is Kirk Miller, a longtime sound man for Ween. Um, and I just realized this as Paul was uh, talking to him, is that, you know, Dean and Gene are up there playing their instruments for us. And Kirk Miller is essentially playing Dean and Gene. Like he's mixing them like an instrument uh, to give to us. And uh, it was very, very cool uh, to get him on the phone and to talk to him. And thank you so much, Kirk, for the conversation. Uh, Now here's Paul Gukowski's interview with the legendary Kirk Miller. Uh, We are here with uh, Kirk Miller, legendary uh, sound man for the greatest rock and roll band in the history of the universe, Ween. Uh, Kirk, thank you so much for doing this. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, so um, before we get going, uh, I think I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity uh, on behalf of, of Ween fans around the universe uh, to just say thank you. Uh, for all that you have done uh, for us fans. Uh, such a, a, a huge part of the Ween fan experience is seeing the band live, and they fucking sound so good every night, and obviously that has a lot to do with you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I'd like to think I'm, I'm just conveying, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are such a thing as acoustics. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we, the whole point of this, this podcast was to get, it was three lifelong Ween fans uh, to get our friend Evan to accept the band into his heart, uh, into his small, feeble mind. <laughs> and uh, it really, it, I think you actually played a big part in that as well, because it, it really took, uh, we took him, season one culminated with us taking him to the Capitol Theater shows uh, last December. Uh, and hearing it live is really like feeling it vibrate through his chest, brain and soul, I think is really what finally, he finally fucking understood it. So, and thank you for that. Well, too. That's, that's great. And thank you. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. The, uh, you know, the band just played candy for the first time ever. And songs like that are, uh, what's my point here? Um, it, it, it's it's understandable that when listening to records with songs like that, how it would take a long time for someone to become a fan of the band. <laughs> right. It wasn't, it wasn't the first track we played. It was a definitely, a, it's a hard, it, it was a journey for us uh, to try and figure out the right entry points and, and but playing him <laughs> live tracks uh, from some of the live albums over the years, which I know you were, we'll, we'll talk about and get into, which I know you were a big okay. part of. Um, also helped along the way, but yeah. So, uh, I wanted to just go back to the beginning. Um, and I'm just so curious how you originally got connected with the band. Um, so just, uh, I'm having a, just put all the bones and digital connections here. I'm just make sure I heard your, your question correctly. You're asking how I got to mix for Ween. How, how, yeah, how you originally got connected with the, okay. with the um, Well, I was working as a house sound guy at a little dive bar called the Court Tavern in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And 
the, the band Ween had been getting a, a, a local hubbub going. And the, the very first show they did there was in, uh, in 89. And it was the, the, the booker for the club had booked a whole bunch of duos, like five duos. And one of the duos was uh, Roger Miller from Mission of Burma, his project, No Man, just yeah. as a aside there. Um, but Ween was the headliner. So, And at this point in time, the club was open till like 3 in the morning. So it's getting to be 10, 11, 12 o'clock, and no one from like Ween hasn't walked in the door yet. And they're the big headliner going on at like 1 or 1.30 in the morning. And uh, all of a sudden, they walk in with this, this entourage, uh, Andrew Weiss, Teo Van Rock, uh, who mixed the Rollins band and was also uh, one of the engineers, producers on the first record, God of Satan. Um, so they finally show up and just kind of like waltz onto the stage. Uh, mean Ween was with them, feeding them with it the whole time. Um, <laughs> and I didn't actually mix them that show. Uh, I, I think... Teo mixed them. And then the second time, a few months later, they came to the court tavern. Uh, uh, William Tucker, uh, who is deceased at this point, but he was part of the Chicago industrial scene. But he actually, going way back, he taught Mickey how to play guitar, basically. He was from, uh, from the Trenton, Princeton area. And him and Andrew Weiss and Sim Kane had a band called uh, Regressive Aid. So... I'm totally going off on a tangent here. No, this is um, exactly what we're <laughs> fucking looking for, Kirk. This is perfect. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, what, so so can, the, I, the, me, the, can I ask you what you, like, when these fucking guys get up on stage and they're being fed whippets and they're, and they're getting into their, like, what is going through your mind? Uh, if you well, can remember, I, I, like, they, that first night of, like, what, like the, what do you make of these two guys? They, they, that's when they were still wearing their headgear. <laughs> And it was a lot of laughs, that's for sure. It was, I, I don't know, I honestly can't remember if I'd heard the first record before they played the Court Tavern show, um, the first one. But I, I quickly became a fan. And then, so there was the, the first show that I think Teo Van Rock mixed, the second show that Billy Tucker mixed. And then the third time they came to the court, I mixed and they liked what I did enough to ask me to start doing other shows with them. I, I think outside of the court, the, uh, the first show I did with them might've been the, the Trenton, the uh, WTSR, some kind of benefit and they were ghost and I felt pretty disconnected because I just kind of showed up at this radio station marathon benefit thing <laughs> and they showed up and they, I had like an effects rack with me. They, the reason they, they started asking me to do stuff with them was because I seemed to be the first sound guy that kind of got what they were going for as far as the, the waste goes. Yeah. And, and, and by waste, I mean, effects, whether it's just reverbs and delays or 
pitch change or whatever. And, and those early gigs with them, I was certainly just going nuts, throwing stuff left and right because I thought that's what they wanted. I didn't. It seemed to be going well. Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, and at that point, had you had you mixed like what, where were you at in terms of your own kind of career in, in terms of sound mixing? Like, was this the first? Were, were we in? you know, some of the first guys that you actually worked with consistently and were kind of engaging in that way? Um, well, there was a, a band that initially got me in the door of the, the court tavern called uh, Stretch. They were this jazz fusion trio. And I'd been running around... Um, um, I'd been running around with them and then... Uh, a couple other bands I'd started doing stuff outside of the club with Tiny Lights, which was Dave Drywitz's band, being one of the first ones for sure. Um, but Ween was the first band that ever actually, uh, you know, was, with, with that band Stretch, I was starting. I was doing regional stuff. And, and how um, how uh, old were you at this point? Uh, let's see, this would be. It's like eighty nine. Uh, 89, I was born in 61. So there you go. Great. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm younger than I, I look younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Very blessed. Very blessed. Uh, so, yeah, so, so you had had, yeah. you know, so you had, you had been doing sound for some bands around town. So you had, you had started to get, you know, you had gotten your feet wet and you were, you kind of knew what you were doing and then it, it just connected with, uh, with with Aaron and Mickey, yes, and uh, you know I I knew what I was doing relatively. I'd like to think I know what I'm doing much better now. <laughs> sure, <yeah. laughs> totally. But um, I mean, I, I, as far as most of my touring friends and, and peers go, I got on the road late for sure. But it was just the way it was just the way it worked out. Um, one thing that's kind of funny is that as in the early days when Ween was calling me to, to mix shows with them, Mickey would call me one day and then like the next day, Dave Windor from monster magnet would call me for a gig on the same day somewhere. And that it happened like three or four times before monster magnet finally stopped calling me. Yeah. And I was friends, I'm friends with those guys and it was all good, but it was just funny how, Consistently, I was getting calls from them for the same day, a day after Mickey called me. <laughs> and did you, did you have a feeling pretty early on that this was some special shit happening with them? I mean, was it was it pretty clear that these guys were on some on some different shit? Well, they were truly unique, and I didn't look at them and go, "Oh boy, I'm going to make a million bucks with this band." <laughs> <laughs> Hitching your wagon. <laughs> and, and in fact, in fact, that's never actually occurred to me. But it's not all the times that you'd be like, "Oh, the two guys on stage doing whippets. These are that's my meal ticket." <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> These um, guys have it all so, fucking figured out. We, we, we all, we got along really well. They left what I did. I loved the music. And then of course, at some point I was just, I dove in the deep end of the pool, so to speak. Yeah. And so, and I know the early years, it was really, it was the three of you guys on tour, right? Yeah. Like in, 
1991 is when I started doing one-offs with them. And I, I would do a little bit of regional stuff with them, like run up to Boston and down to DC to doing shows like with the dead milkman. Um, which is actually the first time I met Dan Mapp, who was our tour manager now. <laughs> um, cause he was the dead milkman's, uh, sound guy and tour manager. Nice. Uh, so it, it was just regional stuff, but then in early 92, uh, actually it was late 91. Mickey called me and said, Hey, we're, we're going to go on tour. We got this deal and we're going to go on tour. And, you want to be the guy? Yeah. And I said, sure. Cause I'd been itching to get out on the road more. And it was just the three of us. Yeah. We, we had a great rapport and not that we don't anymore. I'm not saying that at all, but right. um, well, I would imagine at that point you're like fucking young and you're, you know, it's like you're it, there's, while there's certainly stakes, the stakes are, are kind of low too, right? You're just like, you're out on the road you're doing shows every night and there's that freedom of just kind of being out there and sleeping in a new city every night. And that that's a, I think that I would imagine that's a really special kind of experience to have. It is. And, and it's so for some people that first tour breaks them and they're like, I am never going on tour again, <laughs> but for others, it's the thing that works. And I'm one of the others. I, I, I gone to school for sound recording and I had envisioned going and working in recording studios, but as soon as I started doing, I always liked traveling, and as soon as I started doing live sound, it was just kind of like, whoa, this is way better. Yeah, yeah. And so, are you a Jersey kid? Did you grow up in Jersey? No, not at all. I, I went to, I, I moved there to go to Rutgers University, and suddenly it was 28 years later before I left. <laughs> Um, so you're, can you, is there, um, just curious of like those early days of going into clubs of, of what that was like of, you know, I know you, so you have this kind of, you know, you have this relationship with the band, there's trust, you're doing sound. There's obviously, um, on some of the live records, you know, Mickey even calls out like, uh, that he stoked on a certain, on a certain effect he did. Um, and those early days, like how, how did that interplay work? Was it, you know, like, uh, were, you know, writing up, were they writing up set lists and, and kind of asking you to, to do certain things at certain points, or was it really just kind of a feel thing in those early days? At the very beginning, it was absolutely just going for it. Um, there'd be certain songs that Mickey would say, can you do this on? And I was always limited by the effects units that were available to me, which is why I started carrying my own effects units. Um, because you know, most bands' reverb and delay is about as wacky as it gets. Right. Whereas with me, it was certainly stretching further out. <laughs> um, so it started with as a free for all, and then slow, slowly got honed in. Um, I, I remember there's one show, Princeton Community Park North, when we opened for the Rollins Band, and I had some kind of weird pitch change, delay pitch change thing going, and Aaron shouts out, Kirk, what are you doing to me? <laughs> 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 so, I mean, at moments like that, I was like, all right, then I, I don't need to 
go quite that far out there than with that sound. Right, kind of testing, testing Again. limits, seeing what flies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I, I was never told, don't do this or don't do that. Right. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and the, I mean, it had to be really, uh, you know, those early club days where it was the three of you in, the, in a sound machine on stage and playing, you know, opening and for punk bands or like there had to be some intense, intense shows back in the day. Like any, anyone's kind of well, stick out of like, what the fuck are we doing here? Or like, like how, how, the, how is this going to play out? When, when they were doing the bulk of their like city garden shows and stuff like that, uh, that's before I got involved with them. So like when they were opening for Fugazi, the butthole surfers, stuff like that, I wasn't present. Uh, in fact, I think I only mixed them once at city gardens and it might've been like the last show of the first tour we did together or something like that, like a hometown ending to the tour. Um, right. So they would, they had already been through that fight. Uh, they were already on the other side of that fight. Uh, and basically, basically, yeah, yeah. Um, that first tour I did with them, we were we were a headliner every night, except for we did two shows with Uncle Tupelo. We headlined one night, and they headlined the next night in Chicago. Oh, did, um, you, did you read the Jeff Tweedy book? Did you see the the? You know, I I I'd seen that comment. Yeah. Uh, someone had posted something on Facebook about that. Do you remember that? Tweedy, Do you have any well, tweet, recollection of that? I have every recollection of it. Uh, I remember it cle- as clear as day. And Tweedy got it wrong in his book. Right. He I, said that Mickey, it was, I saw Mickey comment on that, that it was Will. Co- yeah. So what was the real? Yeah. Yeah. Who was it really? It, it was Uncle Tupelo. It was yeah. uh, It was March of 92. I would have to really, I mean, sure, the actual date is online. Chicago at the Lounge Act. Um, but it was... And in fact, the line that Tweedy said about being like the most punk rock thing, that really came from their sound guy. This dude, Big Gary, was there, was the house sound guy at the Lounge Jazz, which was like Chicago's CBGBs back in the day. And Aaron, the, the, his guitar strap, we're doing sound check, and Aaron's guitar strap kept falling off and he was getting frustrated. And all of a sudden, he just grabbed the neck of his guitar and smashed it on stage and big Gary looked at me and goes that's the most punk rock thing I've ever seen <laughs> so I'm sure he remarked the same yeah, thing to the guys the Uncle, Uncle Tupelo guys and then Tweedy his memory got a little cloudy there sure. at some point yeah yeah of course which happens absolutely <laughs> yeah um, um that's I love that I love, so so there's obviously you know a big part of the band's sound and something we've talked about on our podcast is the idea of Brown and, and kind of what that means. And there's obviously the definitions that Mickey has put out over the years. And, um, and that's the definition. That's the glue. That, that's the truth. It, it's, you know, so many people think Brown is this glorious thing and while it can kind of be glorious, there's usually a really kind of weird or ugly or uncomfortable side to that coin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's like we can. It's that thing. I've always thought about it to be like, it's fu- until it's, it's fun till it's not until it gets to the point like, Oh shit, this is cro- This has crossed some sort of threshold. And now it's like yeah. destructive towards our, at the end, you know, the ends we're trying to get to, uh, it's just gotten fucking out of control. Yeah. I, I, it, Brown is not, it, it can be a good thing. 
but it's not really. What is it? So what is it? So right, especially for us. So your job is to make the band sound as as clear. Well, no, I guess not always. I mean, I think about different. I guess it always sounds fucking crisp and tight, right? I think about like uh, happy colored marbles, like uh, where it goes into like the really dark part. Uh, and like, it's your job, like how to, as a sound man who takes his job very seriously, how do you interact with Brown? Like what is Brown, how does Brown influence your roles and either in those early years and, and obviously now as they play much bigger rooms, like what does that mean for you? And how does that, how do you have to interact with, with the idea of Brown? Uh, it, hmm. <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's like, it's like, you know, there's the phrase, the elf in the room. It's more like the blob in the room. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I can't, it's not like something I'm, looking to achieve or looking for the band to summon. <laughs> um, it, it's really got no guiding spirit to it. It's just something that might pop out. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's all feel. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I mean, there's, there's, there, there's things that, that they'll, I mean, obviously I've mixed all these songs of plenty of times. But still, there'll be moments where I'll hear something and I'm suddenly jumping to my gear, whatever that is, yeah. to accentuate that thing. I don't know. Is that yeah. too nebulous? No, no, no. <laughs> I like, Well, I would think a lot of what you're, and correct me, I mean, is, is a lot of your, I'll just ask, like, it, it would seem to me a lot of your responsibility is to be reacting to what's happening on stage, right? To be actively just listening and authentically reacting with whatever you're feeling. In absolutely, you know, um, how has that has that kind of changed over the? You know, so they go from the two piece to the full band. Um, like, what was that transition like for you? Uh, well, in, in, most immediately, the songs were longer because you know up until then they were. When I first started working with them, it was the cassette deck, and they had these like ten-minute cassettes with a song or two on side A or and a song or two on side B, and and Mickey would write the set list up, and then sit down with the tape deck and headphones and cue up all these fucking cassettes. Um, eventually, it became the DAT machine, which in theory it could it could we could put like two hours of music on the DAT tape and you could, you could, uh, the, the IDing of tracks was such that you, you, there was none of this fast forwarding, rewinding kind of thing. It was just like you hit the button and the tape automatically goes to that spot without having to manually do it. Right. You're not like um, fast forward or rewind. So, so, you know, the songs were always, X time long and that's all they were um, so they started playing with the live band and well, the songs got longer that was the first thing for sure um, and did they and, and with like in terms of like set lists you know and, and because it was they were kind of tethered to that that tape deck you know it's like okay these are the songs we're playing tonight because this is what we have on the on the tape 
when they went to a live band, you know, went to the full band, did that, like, how does, how does, what is your interaction with the set list? Like, are they giving you the set list at the top? And then you're, you know, if, if they're changing it, is that a huge pain? The, like, or, like, how does that, how does that impact your night? Do you mean like then or now? Uh, well, I guess both then and, and, uh, and then now. Um, okay. Can you repeat the question? Sorry. So like when they, so they go to the full band and now they're like, were they still setting a pretty strict set list in, in those days and sticking to it? And they're like, giving. well, yeah, definitely. Uh, I can't, there's way more audibles as a band than there were when it was just the two of them. It's just it, the, the band offers them more versatility in the performance period in, yeah. in all aspects of it. Yeah. So there's, um, more, there's more interplay. There's, and there's just more variables. There's more back yes. and forth or they're reacting. There's, you know, ex, almost exponentially more reaction happening. On yes. stage. Um, now I don't get a set list till, I don't know, 20, 30, 45 minutes at most before showtime. Um, and how, how cl- are they stick? Are they sticking to it most of the time these days or is it, are they calling audible? Oh, it's, it, it's, it's, there'll be nights when they stick to it and maybe one or two things are different, but then there's those nights where they get 10 songs in and all of a sudden the next 10 songs are different. From what was on the <laughs> and is that, uh, is just, that something that gets and, you kind of, ex- you're like, Oh shit, here we go. Or is it like exciting? Or is it a little bit of everything? Like, what is that like for you? Um, um sound, but, yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it's whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've learned, I've learned to expect anything from them. So while it says that's the next song, if it's not the next song, that's fine too. The, the hardest thing for me is if it's, a song that requires certain effects and then I'm suddenly scrambling to to do whatever I need to do for that to prepare for that song. Yeah. Um, and like what are can you give us examples of like what some of those effects like what are some songs that you're like oh shit I got to get this thing queued up or and like what those Okay, well uh, well you know you've got happy colored marbles that's yeah. a perfect uh, example where Aaron wanted a like a vibrato on his voice during the verses and this may and this may be the way it is on the record I, I haven't listened to the records in so long I can't honestly remember um, but he wanted this like vibrato on his voice during the verses and then a quick slap back on his voice during the chorus so it's just a matter of me going okay is this sending to that is, am I all ready to do that kind yeah. of thing. Um, there's songs like like Spinal or Poop Ship where I'm doing a pitch. Those are the only two songs I do any kind of pitch change on anymore. Um, and that's just a matter of making sure this signal is being sent to that. Yeah. Um, I, Spinal was actually one that I was, I was thinking about in terms of like being at a show and what the feeling you get from it where it like that like kind of icy clanky sound at the top really feels like a fucking needle hitting a spine to me. <laughs> and and, that, and, that, and that's, that, that's the sound that was used on the record and it's programmed, programmed into the club's drum electronics. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it, yeah. Does, and, and, and it is a P 
piercing kind of tone. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's I, it's like once you hear it's like it's one of those it's one of those sounds you hear at a show where you know it's like such a distinct a distinct sound. Um, sure. So so the band so they go to the 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 five piece band and um, yeah obviously the band gets gets more and more popular over the years. They start playing start playing bigger rooms. Um, how did that? How did that kind of impact your role with the band, um, and and, the I, band, yeah, and and did it kind of open up more like tools for you, or or I would imagine like as you get into bigger spaces, maybe there's more you can do, or the the bigger the bigger the space, the bigger the challenge it usually is because of just room acoustics, okay. um, like the Aragon in Chicago, a no, notoriously horrible acoustical nightmare <laughs> uh, and I don't relish when I see the Aragon pop up oh uh, yeah I was there, I was, there uh, I was there last year for Halloween so that's just a night like there's certain rooms that are just a nightmare just because of the way they're, they're built there's nothing you can do about it right I mean they're just kind yeah, of yeah and, and they can't they can't yeah. they can't actually make any changes to architectural changes to that room because of it exactly <laughs> um but there's, there's a. Were you dressed like this, a? Were you dressed like a Care Bear back in the sound booth or what? What is that? What the, the, guys dressed, the, the guys were dressed like Care Bears up on stage. I, 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 I they, they very, they sure they were. They were. But yeah, I, you were not dressed they, as a Care Bear back in the sound. Uh, I, 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 every Halloween, I wear the same costume as I do three sixty five. Days a year, and that is as the jaded sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing special out of me there right. on, on Halloween night. So, so these was, larger rooms was, actually just create more. They're like it's more of a challenge then in a lot of ways. It, 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 it the larger rooms, not as a rule, are more difficult because there's some rooms like the, the upcoming Mission Ballroom, which is almost four thousand capacity, and was designed specifically for live music. Whereas a lot of these older rooms were never designed for amplified music. They were designed for orchestras or vaudeville or whatever, um, but not for loud amplified music. So as, as the band rose in terms of popularity and venue sizes, um, the gear gets better. That that that's the that was the biggest thing for me is that just the PAs got bigger and better. Yeah. Um, but, so it became, in a sense, easier for me to do my job because I had better tools. Are there uh, are there certain rooms that you just love to do sound in, or some or some places that you love um, to to be with the boys and where they're playing? Well, I, I, I the, the, my favorite venue to be in, which unfortunately has never hosted anyone from Wien, is uh, the Mishawaka here in Colorado, um, north of, well, west of Fort Collins. That's my favorite venue to be at, period. But as far as Wien goes, um, you might have stumped me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you my first ween show which is my favorite probably one of my favorite all-time rock and roll live experiences of all time and it is it was an old room so i wonder what the sound but it was um the state theater 
in New Orleans in 2003. It was like, it was part, during oh. Jazz Fest, but it wasn't. With, with Galactic? Uh, no, it was uh, uh, Colonel Claypool's Bucket of Brains. It was like oh, Claypool, God. Bernie Worrell, Brains, and uh, Buckethead. The, and we. And that show was a nightmare for me. I had a miserable time <laughs> mixing that show. No, it was the greatest night of my life, Kirk. It changed my life. That's why we're talking. It's well, why we're I, talking I, tonight I, for better. It it, it was absolutely a challenge. I remember the 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 lows and low mids being really thick, and I was having a really hard time. Is that a good thing? It sounds like a good clear mix. No, it's not. It's not a good thing. I I want things. I want things to be clear and decisive as far as my mix goes. I, I I don't like it when I can't distinctly hear what I'm trying to convey. Yeah, um, and that that show, I think we were on we were on first that day too, yeah. right? Yeah, you guys you guys were okay. first, and, and 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 being being, I mean, I'm sure it was billed as a co-headlining bill, yeah. but being first, you're still always the opening act, and everyone is still going to bend a little bit more over backwards for the headline act. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, it, it's possible I might not have had as much control over certain parts of the PA. Uh, I, I can't remember that distinctly. I just remember that's a show I was not <laughs> pleased with my work at. Um, I hope it had not, we were, there was a lot of us that were screaming the whole time, probably right by you. I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, so, uh, and, and what is your relationship with, like, uh, with Glenn and Dave and um, Claude? Like, is it? Uh, I imagine over the years you guys have all gotten super close. And well, like, D- D- Dave and Claude and me go back to before Ween. Oh wow! Um, oh right, you had met yeah, I mean, Dave's for you had done sound for Dave, one of Dave's earlier bands. Yeah, and both those, you know, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, where Rutgers' main campus is. Both Dave and Claude were students there and became part of the local music scene. Um, so I, I'd, I think maybe the, the first time I met Claude, he was the drummer for this little tr- jazz trio called the James Trio. Uh, the bass player is this guy Pete Fand, who now plays out in the... He's a Vegas musician, uh, plays not Blue Man Group. Well, he, it might be Blue Man. It's not Blue Man Group. It's not Cirque du Soleil, but he's doing like yeah, he's a working at that he's a working level out in Vegas. And the uh, the guitarist was very Pat Metheny influenced. So it was just this little jazz trio, and uh, and then Claude was the bass player for a band called Wooden Soldiers, which was one of the New Brunswick's proudest. Nice. Songs. Um, and Claude's actually now out on tour playing bass for Angelo Moore's band, the guy from Fishbone. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, most people, I think a lot of clubs on the tour are billing it as means drummer, but Claude's really playing bass in that band. <laughs> um, and then Dave, uh, Tiny Lights was his main thing, but he would also play with other local musicians. So at the same time, those guys were learning how to play music. I was learning how to mix sound, and we were doing it at the same place. Nice. And then, I mean, to come together uh, as as part of Ween is pretty special. Then after that, yes. The, the first time that Claude drummed for Ween officially was 
they played the Court Tavern in early 92 with Kramer on bass, uh, who produced the pod or released the, from Shimmy Desk and released the pod record within On Water and all those weird, noisy bands. Um, it was, and they were billed at that point as The Ween. It was just Nicky Aaron, Claude, and Kramer. And they went to England and did like a two-week UK tour. And then they came back, and a couple weeks later was my first tour with them. Um, so I, I'd been, to bring it back around, I'd been working with Dave and Claude for years, and Dave's involvement with me came because his band Instant Death was opening for us at times, and everyone in me loved Instant Death. And then the vibe, when the Chocolate and Cheese Band ended, and then we did the country tour as just the, the two-piece. It was uh, the Aaron Mickey, me, and Paul Monaghan, our tour manager, opening for the Foo Fighters. Uh, and that, that was in 96. Um, it was a weird year because that was, that would have only been, I think it was a couple months, maybe a month or two before the country tour. Um, what are, what were audiences, what were Foo Fighters audiences making of Ween at that point? Well, it, it was, it was kind of a weird tour because the Foo Fighters had been out with, uh, for a while. This was, might've been like their first record tour they were they were obviously a thing because yeah. they were playing like 10,000 seat rooms but uh, it, it was a triple bill the tour started as Jawbreaker That Dog and Foo Fighters and then halfway through the tour it was Jawbreaker Ween Foo Fighters so I, I really can't remember much about how the audiences reacted. Uh, at the time, we were doing rooms bigger than I was used to mixing. We were back doing the two-piece thing for yeah. the first time in years, which was just felt different. Um, so yeah, I cannot remember how those crowds reacted to us at all. I do remember that more most nights on that run, Dave Grohl and Pat Smear would come and hang out with us in the dressing room for a while before we went on. Yeah, so, isn't there like a, I remember there's like a, a video where Dave Grohl brings the boy, he brings out, or he comes out, or he, does he bring out Mickey and Aaron to do Freedom of 76 at like the Palladium in LA or something? I've some, I've definitely seen a video of, of they, they, yeah. the, the, those, those guys love that song and that, that thing came together that day. It was like, I, I, I'm sure it was Grohl's idea or Pat Smear's idea. Because they were the most obvious Green fans amongst the two contingents, um, but yeah, they they worked it out at rehearsal. Like I guess it must have been at, during the food sound check because I do remember it being do remember a sound check. But I wasn't mixing. Their their engineer at the time, Craig Overbay, was mixing, and I, Aaron Mickey joined for freedom. I went out front and listened, and you know, I was like, <laughs> "Yes, I can hear Aaron and Mickey." And yeah. <laughs> uh, not that I could really. I wasn't going to like jump in on the board and go, "No, you have to do this." <laughs> yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, are there are there shows that that stand out for you over the years? 
as being more memorable either because they were just kick ass or because they were a total shit show or like what are what are some of the shows that really kind of stand out for you? The entire country tour in '96. Nice. That uh, that's that, that that is that's one of the two tours I've done in my life that were the most soul redeeming adventures. Yeah, the that. other one was was when I mixed for Victoria Williams with your name. Oh wow, yeah, you know. definitely. Um, and that was in '98, and that was it. Just both those tours just felt so good. The music was so good, and it just felt great. Everyone was in high spirits. Um, that that Wien Country tour was amazing. That's fantastic. So is the is the um, the live in Toronto? That's was that that tour or was that a different tour? That was that tour. That, that, was, that was the only was, time I was listening to that this this afternoon, um, and it sounds so fucking good. Like it sounds. I have it on vinyl, and it was. I was. I got home from work today, and was kind of just thinking about you know the fact that we were going to be talking, and um, I put it on, and it really is so clean and sounds so good. And you can, I think, you can kind of hear that energy that you're talking about. Well, and I'm going to toot my own horn here. That was my board tape. That was just my left and right out of the board. So it wasn't even recorded for release or anything like that. It was just a recording that Mickey thought sounded uh, from a performance level. More important than anything else is the performance. Audio quality, you can overlook, but if the performance isn't there, it doesn't matter how good it sounds. Yeah, right. It's got to be. I mean, it's about what's exactly like what's actually coming out. Like, right? Yeah. So that 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 uh, live in Toronto. That was ninety six. I was probably still recording on cassette. If you listen really closely, you might be able to hear take this on that. Yeah. There's, there's, a, <laughs> there's, there's a. I don't think I moved over to that until like ninety seven, ninety eight. Um. um the other, the other thing I was, I've been listening to recently is the Rotten Cheese uh, mix. Uh, okay, let me tell you a story about that. Yeah, great. <laughs> it, it was when I, I, I used to put a compilation tape together after every tour for the guys in the band. And just like your favorite, it was like Kirk Picks or what? Like your favorite selections? Yeah, it, it was performances that I really liked. Um, and I would give that out to the band members. So the chocolate and cheese tour ends. So I make it. It was actually a. I think it was one and a half 90 minute tapes. Um, Max LXL2S probably would oh, yeah. start. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were sitting out at Claude's house. Claude's copies were sitting in his house, and somebody said, Hey, can I copy these? He said, Sure. And that's how it got out. It was uh, never intended. I, me, Mickey, no one Claude, else would Claude's have given it to anyone. Claude was absolutely the fucking leak. <laughs> <laughs> and that's strictly out of like, and it wasn't malicious. No, it was just more like, yeah. oh, sure, sure. And, and at the time, no one, you know, live performance recordings weren't as important as they are now because everyone makes money off of live record, uh, off of live now as opposed to actual recordings. So something like that then wasn't as big a deal. So, I mean, it's nothing they could, right. they could be plugged anyways. Once it got out, it got out. And then someone eventually named it Rotten Cheese. 
Okay, so that, that wasn't was, your, you didn't write Rotten Cheese on the Max L 90s there. Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it got released because then that, there's a common bitch, Devil's Dick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that uh, brings me great joy on the subway. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, and so the so Kirk, there's so obviously you have you know recorded, uh, you've you've mixed all of these shows over the years, and Ween, unlike any other band uh, that I am aware of, has so many B sides demos that are actually accessible and available for fans to like. Once Ween fans. Uh, who can be quite rabid, as you know. Um, mm-hmm. Once they start to freak out about Ween, there's so much for them to to jump into, um, which I think is really amazing uh, because it's there's you know you think you know a band and they're like all of a sudden you're like what the fuck is that? I remember the first time I ever heard Kim Smoltz and I was like what is this this is I've never heard this before um, and so and the rumors are Kirk that that. There, there's lots, I and mean, there's lots out there, or there's lots in there. Actually, there's lots that haven't I, been released. I, I have, I have recorded almost every show I've mixed with them, uh, or I mixed them. Excuse How me. many shows uh, is that? Brown Base has it at like nine. Uh, Will's intern did some research for us, and it's Brown Base has it at like nine forty-one or something. Does that sound about right to you? For shows you, I would. Well, I would have thought it was more. Honestly. <laughs> it sure seems like more, but uh, no, I'll, I'll accept that figure. Since okay. I've never we'll done call it research. a thousand. We'll call it a thousand shows. You've mixed okay. a thousand shows. You have a um, recording of all, like of all thousand shows. Well, <laughs> the, there were there were certain shows, certainly more back in the day when it was older, shittier gear that. The out, there was no outputs of the console for me to get a recording output for. Um, so there was, there's a handful of those shows. Um, there was probably a couple of shows for, for a long time. We carried a DAT machine, our own DAT machine. And then the thing started dying. So there's a couple of shows that don't exist on, uh, on as far as board tapes go because of that. Uh, there is one show on the country tour in particular uh, in New Orleans, House of Blues, where I'm at the board and, and like I'm facing the stage and at, at like my five o'clock was the house cassette deck that I was recording on. And it was kind of close to audience people, but I didn't, I wasn't concerned. Yeah. But at some point late in the show, I heard the sound of like, the cassette deck door being opened or closed and I turned around and the tape is fucking gone. And what's funny about it is that the person who took it was obviously not a hardcore ween fan because that recording has never made it out. Like it never appeared anywhere. So this this drunk idiot grabbed the (laughs) tape and probably like dropped it in the gutter on on bourbon (laughs) or some shit. Um, But in, uh, in 2004, I actually stepped back and didn't do any shows for a year, which amounted to uh, about 12 shows. Okay. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I, I presume those shows got recorded, but I don't know because I wasn't there. Right. Um, uh, everything else, 
has at has, this point every has, everything is there's history. Has there's documented history. <laughs> there is. And Mickey's in charge. He knows where it all is. Right. Uh, you know, I know at this point when I give him copies of shows, like I'm recording digitally, I get him on a thumb drive and I hand him a thumb drive at the end of the run, at the end of the He's weekend got, or, or whatever. So whether it's physical media or otherwise, uh, Mickey's in charge. Yeah. Can I ask why you <laughs> stepped away in 2004? Were you just taking a, a break from the band or was it, were you doing other gigs? Or? Uh, there, there were a number of little straws that had piled up. Yeah. And then that final piece of straw got laid on top and I was pissed off and right. I'm angry and I was like, fuck this. Um, <laughs> and, and it had nothing to do with mixing the band. It, it was other that we don't need to get into. Sure, yeah. Um, well, it, had nothing, it, had, it had nothing to do with my relationship with Aaron and Mickey or anyone in the band. It was just, there were circumstances arising that I felt weren't being dealt with properly. Yeah. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm done. Right. And... I can't imagine how... That was, that, that, that was the year that... They did this run, I think it was in the summertime. It was like... Uh, they played like Bellingham and, and some other play with the West coast run. And it got really dark with, uh, with drugs and alcohol and and crew wise. Yeah. Um, it's bad vibes. And then, then, then they were supposed to come home, have one week off and start up again with three shows in Boulder for Halloween. And that tour got canceled on one week's notice. So, yeah. I, you know, not only had I stepped back, I was really glad that I wasn't, because if, if I'd still been part of that dark tour and then get another tour canceled on one week's notice, I would have been irate to say so least. Yeah. Um, but then, then, then I, we took one of their breaks and a year later, Nikki called me up and said, we want you back. Yes. Yeah. So nice to, we nice met. Yes, nice we wanted. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we, it, and it's not like our friendship suffered or right. withered away or anything. It was just, uh, it was the right time for me for both things to happen when I left and when I came back. But again, I was gone for a year and I only missed like 10 or 12 right. shows. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, we, you know, it's, we're, want to be respectful of your time, but I have a few, a few more. Uh, okay. that I wanted to ask. This one is from, from Will Nunziata. Yeah, Kirk. Hey, how you doing, man? It's for the who, who, what? This I, is, I, a, I this is a, yeah, this is Will. I, this is oh, the, my okay. one question that I need to ask. Okay. Uh, what is your drink of choice, and are you upset that you didn't get a shout-out in Booze Me Up and Get Me High? Oh, fuck no. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's the booze me, booze me Up and Get Me High thing. No, that's, uh, you know, it's like... What uh, that's I, I I'm not a band member. I don't. I the only time my name's ever been shouted out has been moments of sheer inspiration on their part. Sometimes it's Mickey going, Kirk, what do you want to hear? <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, uh, what was the first part of the question? I'm the sorry. Drink, drink of choice. Drink of choice. Awesome sound IPA. Hell yeah! Nice. Um, are you guys Are you guys aware of the Awesome Sound IPA? No. Who makes that? 
Okay, well, there's the, the Facebook group, Awesome Sound, the Kirk Miller Appreciation Society. Oh, fuck yeah. There's the Wee, there's the Wien song, Awesome Sound. Of course, that's, that's a big... Yeah, that's... Predated it, of course. Yeah. Um, a local brewing company, Odell, here yeah, in Fort Collins. Yeah, I went to school in Boulder, um, actually. Okay. So uh, I got a I, lot I, of 90 shilling in college. as a, my You know, I, that's one of their beers I cannot... Man. It's been a while. Um, I was like, my, it was very drinkable in when I was twenty-two. <laughs> um, the uh, I've got uh, one particular close friend at the brew at the brewery here in Fort Collins, but there's a bunch of Ween fans that work there, um, and there's a mutual love and respect thing going on. And they asked me to co-brew a beer with them. Um, oh, that's sick. So it, it's. A, me being primarily a hops guy. I mean, I love good stout. I love other styles of beer as well, but I'm, I'm not, I really like hops. Yeah. And they asked me to, they'd asked a couple of years ago about a wean beer. And not only could I not get a straight answer out of management as to whether or not we should do this. I mean, Aaron was already sober, but then Mickey became sober this year. So at this point, it was just not appropriate to have a wean beer. Right. But the brewery said, well, what do you think of Awesome Sound IPA is the name of a, a beer we'll brew together? And I said, sure. So <laughs> that sounds like a uh, <laughs> they have a, uh, a location down in Denver that is about a mile from the Mission Ballroom, where our three shows are at the end of the month. Yep. And the, we went down there, brewed this beer with a bunch of fresh hops and all kinds of good tasting hops. And, uh, it's getting released at the mission ball, actually no not at the mission ball, but, but it's, but it's getting released at the Odell Denver location the day before the green shows of the mission. And yeah. it's only, it's about seven barrels. So like 13, 14 kegs. And it's just going to be available at that Odell location for as long as it lasts. Um, That's great. Are they, making, are they making T-shirts? I want a, I want an awesome sound IPA T-shirt. There, there's, there was talk of a custom custom Crowler label. The normal oh, yeah. Odell Crowler, they just write in the name of the beer that's getting in there. But they were talking about doing a custom Crowler label. I need to find out what's going on with that because I want to get some copies of the label for myself just as like stickers or whatever. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, Listeners of this podcast but, uh, know that Awesome Sound is uh, one of my favorite. Uh, the one from All Request Live to me is a perfect song. I listen to it. Uh, I don't particularly remember that Awesome Sound. <laughs> I mean, that show is... It's just very that, clean. It's just like, they, they keep going. It's just fun. It makes me laugh. It makes me head, you know thrash around. It does it. Okay. It, hits, it hits me in all the right spots. That I think that show was done at Greg Fry's studio, maybe. Um, either way, it was multi-tracked, multi-track recorded, and, and mixed after the fact. So that is definitely not my work, so to speak. <laughs> um, so we this this podcast started uh, with us trying to get Evan to to like Ween and and. As our listeners know, and as I mentioned to you at the top, he came around. Um, have you ever had anyone in your life, a girlfriend, partner, 
friend who didn't like you're like oh yeah I work for Ween you know I work with Ween I do the sound for this band Ween um, that have you ever had anyone in your life that just hasn't that just doesn't get it are you talking let me make sure I'm hearing the question right you're asking if I've ever had a significant other anyone in your life anyone in your life that just didn't that didn't get it, that you thought should get it that you're like oh this this guy well, okay I, I was gonna say first and foremost my mom I would have loved to have gotten her to a ween show when she was still alive but I'm sure I would have had to have security escort her out like 45 minutes in because it would have been like what the hell <laughs> um uh, uh, no, um, there's certainly been people that it's been a moment of discovery for, uh, but no, no one, I, well, I, I certainly have close friends who don't like the band, <laughs> but yeah. That's, I mean, that's just a musical taste thing. <laughs> is there, if there, and if there's kind of uh, any one or two songs that you, to you, are, are just the, the, your favorite, like what are your songs that you get really excited to hear? Uh, would you either see it on the set list or they bust it out? Or you're like, you, you know. Uh, um, I definitely have a penchant for the pretty melodies. Mm. What Diener was talking about, Stay yeah. Forever. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying those are my two favorite songs by any means, but those are two that just fulfill that <laughs> that description. Yeah. Um, uh, anytime I remember Wild by something an audible, so to speak, popping up, like I'm going off off the set list. It, it's always more of like, holy cow, they're doing this now. Like, and it's it's definitely a feel thing where right. And I was just like, for it, us it, in the audience, like obviously, there's moments, you know, at Red Rocks when you know they play. If you could save yourself, like you know, everybody gets those those kind of goosebumps. Does that? You know, for you've seen all, you've seen basically all of them over the last, you know, twenty five years. Like, does yes. that? Do you still get? Are you still have those moments? You're like, oh fuck, I love this. I can't believe they're playing this now. I fucking love this song. The the I'm getting tingles as I say this. The second Red Rock show from last year, yeah, where there was half the crowd there was the night before, but the energy from them was like quadruple what the energy was of the sold out show the night before. Yeah. Um, that, that's the one that comes to mind most immediately. And that might be just because that's the, one of the more recent ones that circumstances have blown me away. Yeah, me too. I was there. That definitely, that one left me speechless. It was one of those ones where you walk out just kind of sh- like with my running my hands through my hair, what hair I've left and being like, Whoa, what the fuck? Um, right. that, was, that was a special one. Um, well, Kirk, we want to just thank you so much, uh, for taking the time to speak with us. We put out a call on our Facebook page, our listeners of who they wanted, um, from the ween world, what, you know, if any folks we could talk to and, and your name kept coming up, um, and it means a lot to us. I'm sure the listeners of our podcast, uh, are going to really appreciate hearing, uh, your thoughts 
and your experiences with the band. So I, I'm, I'm like I said before, I'm happy to share. I, well, I said I have no secrets at the outset, well, but any, I suppose uh, there are any, there are still a few secrets. Sure. Any, any, was there any? So we'll close. Any, uh, not to put you on the spot, but any stories that you don't tell off. Is there any stories you want to share? Any crazy ones from either early on or just if there's one that kind of comes to mind that you feel comfortable sharing, is there anything that you want to leave us with? Um, hmm. Like something people, most people just would not know and would be like, Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> Here's a quick little one. Great. And it's fairly, it's pretty recent when we did those, uh, those Brooklyn steel shows yeah, a couple of yeah, years ago. Absolutely. We were there. Yeah, we were um, there. okay. Uh, I think that, it was place, that place has good sound. Like that, is that a room where you're like, that's built for sound kind of like mission or is that, did right. you enjoy working in that space? I, we go there. The, the, the three the, of us go there the, a the, lot. Cause it's, it's close okay. to where we are. The first night was difficult for me. Um, and, and the PA, the, the kind of, sound system they have I've worked on more times I can count in a number of different scenarios um, and it just I, I, I was struggling that whole first night the second night when we went in for sound check uh, I talked to the house engineer about it and he said he gave me the settings that the Pixies sound engineer had been allowed because the Pixies were carrying their own of the same kind and they agreed not to bring in their PA if their engineer could tweak it exactly the way he wanted it so for the second night I went to the Pixies guys tweaks and I had a great night nice um, but that I, I can't remember if it was the first or the second night I want to say it was the second night that uh, Gibby from the Buttholes was there with his son <laughs> and when, when the band walked on stage uh, Gibby and his son were with the instead of five guys walking on stage, it was seven, and uh, they sat down right in front of the uh, the, the monitor, the amp racks and stuff that the monitor console was sitting on, and Gibby. It's the first song, and Gibby closed his eyes and leaned back and knocked out the power of the entire monitor rig as the band was starting to play. <laughs> um, and it was funny because that night too, they were they actually had the buttholes song uh, two-parter on the set list to perform, but it you know, like often didn't get, things don't happen the way they were written. <laughs> um, so that's, that's my one little story I'll share for now. Awesome. Thanks Kirk. We really appreciate it when you're uh when you're in New York uh, for the Terminal 5 shows, which I assume you're doing, you're doing the Terminal 5 shows? Yes, they hey. just got announced today, I yeah. think, right? Yeah, we'll be there for sure, and we'd love to buy you uh, an IPA or whatever you want. Okay, uh, well, you'll honest. you'll know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Kirk. All right, take care, guys. All right, Thanks. take care. Be well. Bye-bye.
This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.